You should ask our youngest daughter that because we're always forbidden from talking about anything to do with the nose. She goes ballistic if we do. You know, when children, you say, you cannot get up, you cannot uh, leave the table until you finish your meal. She threatens us and she says, if you talk about noses, I will not stay at the table. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. It is the month of June, and we are really chuffed that Vectra from Canfield Scientific have brought this month to us and our listeners from all around the world. So shout out to Vectra. Thank you very much. And this brings me to today's episode. We've got a power couple today. It's all the way from London. It's such a pleasure for me to welcome to today's episode, Lydia Badia and Charles East. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, it's it's just wonderful to be able to chat to you guys for the next while. Oh, fantastic. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks for having us. Okay, so guys, uh, the first thing, for, so for the people who are listening, unfortunately you can't see, I want to bring this book out. <laughs> oh, okay. Ear, nose and throat and head and neck surgery. How's this? This was when I was a medical student. So the other day I had a medical student staying here. We actually did his nose. And he wants to know about ENT. So I thought, look, I've got this old book. I'm going to pull it out. And the coolest thing about it, when I saw who the author was, Charles East. Yeah. Charles, it's, this is a blast from the past. I mean, this is like 30 years ago, eh? Yeah, yeah. I wrote that when I was a senior registrar um, at the Middlesex Hospital. I was in a research post at the end waiting to get a consultant's job. And um, we thought, well, we'll write a, we got an offer. Actually, Ram Dillon, who's the principal author, said, do you want to write this book? I thought, well, I'm not sure. Books aren't particularly interesting. And anyway, this was world beating because it was one topic on a double page. And it went it went to second, third editions. It can't translate into several different languages. And um, it's actually made a bit of money out of it. So I felt quite, uh, quite chuffed. It's amazing. So tell me, I'm so interested to know your guys. The first question I have, how did you guys meet? <laughs> oh, thank you for the question. Um, I was uh, a resident and Charles was uh, my boss. That's how we first met. And Charles always says it was the only time I was in charge. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, so that, was, that was way back, 1994, 95 or so. Long, wow. long time ago. I mean, just, that was it, just a professional relationship at the time. Little did we Amazing. know. So now, Charles, I want to know your, your, your path from the day when you were still a senior resident writing a general ENT book to now being one of the leaders in preservation rhinoplasty. I mean, your journey over the last 30 years must be fascinating. Yeah. It, I mean, I, when I reflect back, it was because I did my first rhinoplasty in 1984 and it was an open approach. Um, I had two very inspirational senior registrars, uh, Mike Rother and Jerry O'Donoghue. And um, one of them had been off to, to Toronto and seen uh, uh, Wilf Goodman. And so I was, had an interest in the nose. Anyway, he gave me some projects to do. And I remember picking up some noses from the lab in Oxford and cycling down from the old John Radcliffe to the Radcliffe Infirmary with all these noses in a bucket because we were going to dissect them. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of how it kicked off, uh, 80, yeah, 84. 
And then um, uh, I suppose it was a bit of a wilderness because then I ended up in a fellowship in Seattle with uh, Wayne Larrabee. And I kind of sort of almost serendipitously fell upon him and he was amazing and probably one of the biggest influences in my life in facial plastics. And he's just been a sort of a, uh, a fantastic beacon, but kind, um, lovely man, lovely man. So uh, there was a there was an a guy you might know called um, Toriyumi, who was also the fellow with me. So we overlapped for uh, a short period of time in Seattle, um, and I went back to England. And of course, no one knew what the hell I was doing. Um, so it, it, I had a difficult sort of passage. But one of my bosses, Henry Grant, said, "Look, um, I'm not sure what you're doing, but I'll cover you if you want." You know, there's all these cases that need doing. Um, off you go. So I was given basically a free hand to kick off with that. And then when I got appointed at the Royal National, Tony Bull sort of took me under his wing as a mentor. So I never worked for Tony Bull, but um, he was amazing for the sort of first five, six years of my career. He was sat in the Royal National in the next sort of box. So it was that was a wonderful time to have that sort of mentorship around. So. Mm. Learned a lot of things, not not practical necessary, but you know how to organise, how to run, what have you. And then oh, obviously cool. Lydia's taught me how to run everything these days. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I so, thought I'd chat you guys. Go on. We're gonna we're gonna get onto your practice management because that's that's just outstanding, world class. So Lydia, tell us your side. How how did you get into uh, facial plastic surgery and doing the rhinoplasties that you do? Well. Um, I became a consultant uh, the day Tony Bull retired. Um, so I took over his position at the Royal National Third Northern Ear Hospital. And it was like the best thing that happened to me to get that post. I had already developed an interest in, in rhinology. Having worked for uh, Valerie Lunch, I was very much focused within the nose and sinuses. So throughout my training, especially the last few years of my training, I very much decided that um, otology or head and neck was not going to be my path. So um, ha having, having done rhinology, then facial plastics and that was that, really. Um, I never looked back. So that was in 2001 when um, I became appointed. And I still find it fascinating that despite all these years, I still feel as if I am specializing more and more. <laughs> I was saying to Charles, even now within rhinoplasty, do you think we will have to yeah. specialize within <laughs> rhinoplasty, which is kind of, well, it's an interesting topic to talk about perhaps later. Sure, but no, okay. So what I'm interested to know is you guys are both super specialists. You work in a practice together, husband and wife, family, oh. How do you do it, man? It's mass. I mean, what do you talk about at supper time? You talk about rhinoplasty, you work in rhinoplasty. Our youngest daughter, that. You should ask our youngest daughter that because we're always forbidden from talking about anything to do with the nose. She goes ballistic if we do. You know, when she'll then you say, you cannot get up, you cannot uh, leave the table until you finish your meal. She threatens us and she says, if you talk about noses, I will not stay at the table. <laughs> <laughs> 
reverse. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, Charles, there's many things, many things to talk about, but yeah, I mean, obviously, we share the load for cases, difficult problems, chatting through, and then a lot of it's actually sort of business stuff we talk about too, which is not actually technical from rhinoplasty. Mm. But okay, so let's carry on down that road in terms of business. I think. So I remember in Bergamo, you released um, this really cool new app. Maybe you want to tell the listeners a little bit about what led to you and what it's called and, and yeah, explain that a little bit to us. You mean the your eyes only? Yes. Um, so, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I as the sort of um, vice president in the rhinoplasty side of Europe, I think I was charged with trying to find a platform that was confidential, um, that could be used and wouldn't contravene the GDPRS rules. Um, and it, it, this was, again, serendipity. It was a, at a, a birthday party from a, a colleague. We were in Mykonos, and I'd never met this chap, Alan, who was an entrepreneur in, in sort of technology. And he started talking to me about this app um, that he's got, which is constant facial recognition. Um, so I said, oh, but I mean, you know, the iPhone does that anyway. You know, you look at it in terms of, no, 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 this is, no, 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 this is much more advanced. Um, so he, uh, I, so I called him up and just said, you know, is that, how have you got on with that thing? He said, well, actually, we're at a point of development now and we're looking for piloting groups. And I said, well, do you think the Rhinoplasty Society of Europe might be a good sort of group? He said, yeah, yeah, sure. So basically, we, we the board had use of this and we were giving him feedback about what's helpful, what's not helpful, what we could do, how can we build a library, having a professional version of this and then there'll be an enterprise version of it. So Yeo promises to be um, a groundbreaking and ultra secure way which you can totally control your data. With any other platform, once you hit send, you have no control over that image, that document, that video, anything else. Um, and so you keeps that total control in your pocket. And so therefore, it will be a very good way to sort of validate who's sitting at the other end. Um, it will be able to be the front end for webinars. So if you haven't paid, you can't watch. Um, it'll be, you know, very, very relevant documents, images will be completely secure and you can burn them after the person's seen them. So you, it, it promises to be a, a fabulous platform that will be employed in the military, we think in, in insurance, in lots of different areas, but we just were the pilot for um, for medicine. Um, so they're looking to raise a little bit more money in the investment to, com to complete the development. Um, but we're going to sort of, we've got a preferential rate of using that in the Rhinoplasty Society of Europe, and we'll adopt it as the, as the common platform. So it won't be WhatsApp for anything confidential or Signal or Telegram, they'll be using Yeo. That's fantastic. So last week, we actually, the podcast was with Werner Hept, the current president who you're going to be taking over from. Um, it's amazing how innovative the Rhinoplasty Society of Europe has been over the last few years. I mean, it's only been going for just over a decade, but you guys are probably the most influential Rhinoplasty Society in the world. I think, yeah, well, that's hats off to um, Wolfgang and Nazim and Enrico, who kind of really sort of stoked this and fueled it up. But I think it was, uh, there were some difficulties to start with, but I think actually it's got a very nice cohesive group. Um, it's encompassing, it, it's it's inclusive, it's not exclusive. Um, so it's great. And I, I mean, we're up to over 600 and 
30, 40 members now, which is incredible for that short period of time. And, um, you know, going from strength to strength. So it's great. So the big news, obviously, is next year's meeting in Berlin. Uh, maybe you want to tell the listeners a little bit more about that. Well, that's the now term of the Global Masters 2023. So it's been put off for two years because of COVID. And this started with the um, coming together of the Rhinoplasty Society in the USA and the Rhinoplasty Society of Europe. So there are going to be something like 48 speakers, 50 speakers at this meeting. Um, it's right in the heart of Berlin in June. So it's a brilliant month to be there. Berlin's an amazing city and you're going to get the best of America, the best of Europe and South Africa, India, South America too. So we've, we've extended it past just the Rhinoplasty Society and Rhinoplasty Society of Europe. So we want everyone involved in this. So yeah. Far East, Middle East, Southern, southern parts of, uh, of the world. Uh, so, you know, we're all welcome. So that'll be a great meeting. We'll, you'll be hearing more about it. The invites have gone out and uh, we'll be promoting that strongly. So spread the word. Yes. Yeah, so the listeners, guys, please make sure that you get to Berlin from the 30th of June next year, the first few days of July. There is not going to be a Bergamo meeting next year. So it's focused on that. Source is not having a meeting. We focused on Berlin as well. So every, all the, the preservation meeting is not happening next year either. It's all focused on Berlin. So if you have not yet been to one of these IMRS meetings, this, or the Global Masters, please make sure you come. Okay, so now I want to step aside here. And Lydia, I want to chat to you a little bit here. So last year, I had a, a, one of the series was on the leading ladies of rhinoplasty. And in our, in our ENT world, I think, in, especially in sinus surgery and otology, I think there's not much difference between the men and the women. But in rhinoplasty, however you want to look at it, the ladies are definitely in the minority. So I want to just ask you a few things around being a woman doing rhinoplasty because I feel quite strongly that there, there needs to be more women out there doing it. And I think often they, the, the ladies that are don't, aren't really recognized. So it sounds maybe a bit controversial, but I think it's important. I think there's a lot of listeners, especially residents and girls who want to get into rhinoplasty who somehow can't do that. Now, obviously, the, the difficulty of that also is, is having to, to juggle your life as a professional and uh, as a mom, how, how to do that. So, yeah, inspire me and inspire the listeners a little bit. <laughs> oh, um, well, thank you for the question. Women, women in surgery has always been a very interesting topic. There was, uh, within the Royal College of Surgeons, um, they had a, a subdivision um, called Women in Surgery and, and how, how to do it all. Surgery in general, um, not just the anti-surgery, all surgical specialties, especially in the last 30 years, have had fewer women than men. That's uh, that's a fact. So that's uh, that's actually changing a lot. You mentioned within ENT surgery, there are other specialties of pharmacology, especially um, obstetrics and gynecology. There are many other surgical specialties that have many more women. Juggling family life and and work generally, it's. Um, 
it's just tough. It's tough for women. I always say to the younger to the younger group, it's dumb if you do and dumb if you don't. Um, you feel guilty whatever it is that you do. Yeah. If you are stopping work, just let's make it a broader topic. If you if you want to work, you feel guilty leaving the child at home. If you are staying with the child, you feel like sometimes a little bit and uh, not not fulfilling your full ability. Mm, so, mm. And that happens, I think, with any working mom. In rhinoplasty, particularly, I have, I've always said to Charles, um, it's actually quite difficult for women. There are many women that perform amazingly good rhinoplasties, but the reason maybe we're not seen as much is because um, I, I call it at the top um, it's it's yeah. quite a male dominated environment at the yes. top and yes. within that perhaps ego area of the operation belongs to me um, in the past, I think things are changing very quickly, but they've not been perhaps able to open up. It was um, in the past, anyhow, it was a bit more like a club. And um, the club is still there to a certain degree, but things are changing very much so. And there are very many good women in Germany, Berlin, in Belgium, obviously in England, 100% in South America, and many, many very good women also coming coming to the table and presenting at um, scientific meetings. Mm. There'll awesome. be more to come. That's great. Eh? Okay, so so Charles, back to you. Uh, two months ago, I had a splendid day with you in the in the OR or the theatre in London, and there are two parts that I want to chat to you guys about. The one is obviously some technical stuff about especially the preservation rhinoplasty side of things, but also your practice management. I mean, you guys, COVID has changed things for you quite dramatically. And, and I was really inspired by how you guys are running your practice now. So maybe you want to tell the listeners a little bit more about how over the last two years or so it's evolved and, and how, because there's a lot of little pearls I picked up from spending time with you. Well, um, yeah, I, I think um, apart from looking at the disaster of COVID, we saw it as an opportunity. And I think um, I think we kind of woke up a little bit late to this really in our careers. We should have been focusing a bit earlier. But when you sort of reflect, um, what I think the difference was is we decided to set out <clears throat> to people how we are going to work. Whereas traditionally in medicine, you sit at the desk, the secretary makes an appointment and someone comes and sees you. So we thought, well, look, we, we need to be a bit more in control of this process because, as you know, um, there can be difficult patients in rhinoplasty. It, it can be quite a challenging uh, venture for people and the psychology behind it is sort of difficult. So we wanted to make sure we were trying to pick the sort of people we wanted to help the most, the people we liked. Um, so, in essence, that meant changing how we engaged. Now, we had the luxury of a lot of, a lot of inquiries in, in 
COVID. So suddenly everyone was looking at themselves on the monitor and thinking, oh, it's a good time to get my nose done or whatever. So we were absolutely inundated with requests. And um, we didn't quite know what to do with it, really, because, you know, they were sort of 60, 70 a day sometimes. I mean, it was ridiculous. So we ended up basically changing a way in which we engaged that, that that we basically decided to put out a formal questionnaire. We wanted to try and pre-assess people. We wanted to know who potentially wanted to come and see us. So we needed to know a bit more about the inquiries and ended up with doing quite a lot of sort of changes. That at, at the beginning, people were said, oh, no, no, I'll wait to come and see you face to face. We said, no, no, the way we work now is you've got to have an e-consultation before we even get past the door. So. It gave us an opportunity for different levels to be able to filter people. So it's like an interview in a way. And and what what we've noticed, sorry to butt in, but these video consultations have been the most helpful thing for the patients. Mm. Every single patient now says that was so useful. It was so useful for me. It gave me as much information as I needed. I was able to then make a decision. I know the timings, I know the pricing, I know which type of rhinoplasty is like uh, gonna be the, the, the one for me. So we thought initially it was gonna be helpful for us, but it's actually turned out to be the most helpful thing wow. for the patients. Okay. Well, it's huge. And how long do you take for those consultations? 30 minutes. Oh, wow. And patients pay for that consultation as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your opinion has value. That's the other thing that's quite important, I think, is that, that you know, you've had 30, well, between us, we've got many, many years of experience. That has a value yeah. to talk to people. Yes. So you don't give it away for free. I mean, you know, you wouldn't see a lawyer who would give you that sort of advice uh, for nothing. Yeah. So we suddenly thought, well, OK, well, look, we do need to make this some value so that people feel, OK, I'm paying for this. This is there's something that's that's proper there rather than a free. So we get got away with anything to do with free consultations. That's a complete nightmare. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, the video consultations are embedded within our practice management system, so uh, they are secure. We don't use Zoom or Teams or any of those platforms. We we use our own system, so it it keeps an eye on the time. It keeps a record of um, what the consultation was about. It's been a game changer, but as I said earlier, the main the main improvement has been from the patient's perspective. Yeah, and, it's, and when the patient sees you or you move to the next step, i.e., you know, yes, we agree, yeah, this is fine, they come. They almost like they know you. And so the same, and the same for and, us. And it is a lovely. So there's none of that sort of cold introduction. You haven't got grandma sitting in the back. Um, you know, lots of little questions will worry. Let me think about this. It's all positive. And it, I tell you, you know, they've signed the terms and conditions. We've got their pictures. We've done a questionnaire. We know 95% about these people before they even meet them. Right. And they know a lot about us, too. They know what yeah. technically we're proposing. They know they've chatted to us. Yeah. They also feel that they know us quite well. So this face-to-face -face yeah. consultation yeah. is very much... 
it clicks. Yeah. There's a very good doctor-patient. Jean Kern, who, who is one of the sort of classic mentors, Gene, who's amazing, talks about a lot of the psychology. He said, you know, the, the reason that, that he's been an inspirational sort of person in terms of saying build rapport, number one. So what this technique has done means that we have an instant rapport when they come to see us. So you're, it, it ends up with a huge conversion rate. Very few people don't go ahead. Um, your time is much more efficient. You're not wasting it going backwards and forwards. There isn't a whole host of sort of secondary, well, there are a secondary, but those patients might not proceed because mm. they're awkward. So there's lots of things in terms of how we set out how we work that's made this difference. And it's made us unbelievable, or continue to be unbelievably busy. So, Okay, so changing track now slightly to another topic I want to kind of cover with you guys is this massive evolution. If you think about it, Charles, your first rhinoplasty in 1984. But in the last, say, five years, there's been a dramatic change with all the new preservation techniques. What led you to, in a way, it's like the whole thing's turned upside down. I'm really interested to know how you guys got into that and how this is now such an important thing, not just in your practice, but in your international teaching with what you guys do. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got to acknowledge the colleagues in our little independent rhinoplasty research group because it was that little cabal of males <laughs> men that would get together and drink a lot of wine and just open the computers and just talk and um so you know we we picked a place usually a wine region either bordeaux or it was napa valley or uh, avignon and it, it was in those meetings one of the group obviously was yves Sabin, and he was he was talking about this protocol that he did where he didn't cut the hump off and of course we didn't know what the hell he was talking about <laughs> we thought okay and he was saying yeah you just release this and do this and push that down you know and he'd been doing this for 20 years um and it suddenly dawned on us when we were in uh, San Francisco, um, listening to him. You know, you get a sort of a, a light bulb moment with things. When it was really obvious, when, you know, you started, I suppose, reflecting on what mistakes you had and where you were going wrong. And he sort of said, well, you can completely get rid of those problems by doing this. And you go, hmm, okay, maybe. And then, of course, you know, we... Peter Pelhatz is in that little group. So we were able to go off to Budapest. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time doing dissections, both in Nice. We were sitting in the Negresco and we were going into the University of Nice. Um, so that's where we started, the, you know, the Piezo stuff. That's where we started all the preservation stuff. And it was Yves Saban, basically, was the sort of catalyst for this. And then um, Barish, of course, you know, enthusiastically picked that up. And of course, the marshal in all this, who was kicking everyone to, to move forwards, was Ronald Daniel, um, who, again, is one of the sort of champion mentors, um, lovely guy. And he was just brilliant at getting everyone to move forwards. He said, you need to do a study on CTs, Charles. Was, OK, fine. You know, we need to get this done. You need to do that. There's a book coming up. So basically, it was that group. And then the first thing where it was the big eye opening was Barish's meeting in Istanbul. Do you remember that? He ran a meeting purely. 2018? Yeah, it's in 2017, I think. And he got something like 750 people just through social media. 
not associated with any any institution, any yeah, societies. Yeah. And that was just, I sat in that meeting and it was like, oh my God, you know, and then you saw all these people, some of the South Americans, and it was like, it was like having the blinkers taken away <clears throat> because we, in the, I suppose, the structural world were kept on, had experiences the confidence to keep on making the same mistakes. Okay. And then when you have the sort of curtains removed and you just see another way, you think, crikey. And it was it was that moment really from San Francisco, and then Barish's meeting where I thought, "Wow, this is really something special." And then of course it comes back down to deciding on your practice and picking the right patients for that type of technique. Yes. And that's one of the things we've done in terms of our practice of streamlining it. So I decided I didn't want to be speaking on the on the last day with the complex rib here funny this you know reconstruction this that's i didn't want that kind of practice in the last i suppose part of my career so i wanted to then come back to looking at this preservation so it means makes you look at a completely different way about how you approach everything so instead of starting with a destructive i, I use the word you know advisory it's not destructive sure, but sure. taking it all down you, you look at things in a completely different approach respecting the anatomy reorientating trying to use it to your advantage where you can and of course then blending it with that experience which is where we are now with this mix of preservation philosophies but sometimes being enhanced by structural kind of techniques mm -hmm. but the whole move of this is moving away from radically removing bits of tissue so I think that is has to be the right way forwards in terms of doing this operation. So, you know, the hump off, smash the bones in, dredge out a bit of the lower lateral, spit off the front of the septum, 30 minutes, and still that operation goes on. You know, it, it, it has completely turned that upside down. And, and I, I grabbed it and, and I'm very, very grateful to the, the, the IRS group who sort of, you know, collectively have, have pushed us forward. So, um, you know, you're, I'm talking to you with four volumes of the preservation rhinoplasty on the computer underneath us here. No, so, but, it's become, but Charles, it's I think... Olivia's champion the, operation. She, she, she will only pick those sort of patients now. No, I mean, what I see your, your guys' social media, and I mean, I saw you in, in theatre, what you guys do is amazing. And I think one of the things that is the misconceptions that's out there is that it's an easy operation because the IRRS guys are not beginners. These are guys who are massively experienced and uh, even bearish. I mean, to see those results is amazing. And I think one of the concerns that I have is guys who are, say, starting out on their careers and they want to do it, they suddenly like, I'm a preservation rhinoplasty guy. It's not so easy. You know, I think, I think that there's this far deeper understanding of anatomy required than for open structural rhinoplasty. Well, I think that's true. And I, I, I have a fellow with me who's, who's usually a plastic surgeon. The current guy is from Delhi and he's a lovely, charming guy, but he said, I'm interested. I want to do rhinoplasty when I go back. And he's just, his jaw was on the floor. He said, I've never heard of this anatomy. I've never seen it before. I, I didn't understand it. He said, I've seen rhinoplasty, but what you do is just so different. So I, I always say to these people now, and I'm, in the UK, we have made progress. I said, you've got to make your mind up whether you're going to do this operation or not. 
because there is no place for you doing one of these every six weeks tagged on after a breast or something else, you know, as, a, as an add-on. Um, so I think, I think the way this is going is that uh, it's becoming regionalized surgery in the UK. So you can't be a boob surgeon and a face surgeon and a reconstructive surgeon. You're badged for a region. And I think that's going to make sure that these, you know, people, if you're interested in doing it, and it's a fascinating operation, it will up the standard. It will mean you have to go and learn all this microanatomy that's in none of the regular textbooks. And you have to completely reset probably what you were taught in your in, in your basic training. Sure. Lydia, what's one of the Lydia, what's one of the funniest things Charles has ever done in theatre? <laughs> Funny? <laughs> Charles is so charming, but when he's in theatre, he's like all of us surgeons, he's so focused and he really finds it very difficult to tolerate people who aren't focused. Um, so one of the, <laughs> I'm being polite, but one of the funniest things is, for example, when he calls out a, an instrument, I don't know, uh, whatever, um, Heyman scissors, just whatever, whatever instrument, and the scrub nurse um, gives something else and he repeats the name of the instrument and repeats again and again and again. The poor Scrabners is in tears. <laughs> and then he says, well, I'm sorry if I call the instruments by their proper name. <laughs> I think it's a bit of sarcasm that's, that slips in. And, and Charles, now, now, now vice versa, tell, tell me about Lydia and theatre, I want to know. What, what's a, give us a funny moment of time when she threw her toys out the cot. Oh, uh, she doesn't do that. I'm probably more prone to doing that. No, when Lydia's in theatre, it's kind of like a jolly, I mean, especially if we've got a female scrub nurse, a female anaesthetist, a female runner, I can't get a word in edgeways. <laughs> They're all, all this chit-chat going on and... Although usually she says, she says, I tell you what, you do the operation, I'm going to chat. So, the thing when we went out around. Yeah, and then when, when we work together, obviously, you know, that's, that's, that's fun most of the time. It's, um, don't, don't forget that we met operating together and then the romance came many years later. So we are very, very used to working together, to operating together. It's actually more sacred nature to us than anything being in theater Amazing. together yeah we try and, I yeah, mean, my she... wife's my assistant so she she's a general practitioner she's not a she's not a ent specialist or facial plastic surgeon but uh she's she's always making sure that i'm doing the right job in theater good Good. That's why you're so successful. You've got an amazing wife. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> yeah, you do, wow. you do to, to pull you up sometimes, or tap you on the shoulder, or just pull the brake a bit. Yeah, yeah. that's sure. certainly true. Well, guys, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you guys. I mean, it's it's such a breath of fresh air seeing a power couple like you guys, and just being able to um, 
chat to these guys are actually doing such a difference. And I want to, on behalf of the listeners of this podcast from around the world, just say thank you and give you guys a shout out for what you've done for rhinoplasty and what I think you're going to do. And uh, I really hope that the practice in London flies um, and that Berlin next year will be the greatest rhinoplasty conference we've ever had in the world. Brilliant. Well, Cameron, thanks very much indeed. It's a pleasure to speak to you. You've actually been a bit of a champion as well, particularly in pandemic with that world rhinoplasty. That was uh, inspirational. So yeah, that was a lot of fun, you and keep, keep up the good work too. Keep the enthusiasm up. The most important thing is to stay positive. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. And guys, want to give a shout out as well to Vectra. Thanks again for enabling this month of podcast. Guys, please make sure you come back next week. We've got uh, some more really interesting people that we're going to be talking to. So, yeah, Charles, Lydia, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you so Brilliant. much. Bye, Cameron. <laughs> Bye. Okay.